In this episode of the Oak Tree Institute podcast, we welcome on Marguerite Hill. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. She's an adjunct professor, blogger, editor, and freelancer. She has her master's degree in history of Middle Eastern and Islamic Africa from Stanford University, and she does a plethora of work around diversity and inclusion and building anti-racism for Muslim organizations and with non-Muslim organizations. We welcome her on to speak about how we can build more inclusive organizational cultures as Muslims and how we can be anti-racism in our organizational work. Assalamu rahmatullah. Uh, we want to welcome to the Oak Tree Institute podcast, Sister Marguerite Hill. Uh, Sister Marguerite, how are you doing? I'm doing good, alhamdulillah. Uh, we're really honored and privileged to have you on the podcast. And uh, you're our first guest, unfortunately, in, in uh, kind of the circumstances of the coronavirus and the shelterings going on. But we really appreciate you taking the time out to be with us. Well, thank you. This is a really great opportunity now, like with leadership. Um, one important definition that we have is um, people taking responsibility to for share to to provide a vision that we could share in a time of uncertainty. And now is the time where we need really solid leadership and great leadership skills. I I, I love that you started there. So actually, I'd I'd, I'd love I want to get your your, your opinion and perspective on that. Uh, how have you seen the the reactions of Muslim community leaders? I I know you're out in the LA area. I'm just wondering what you've seen. Like, uh, can you share maybe some of the things you all are doing at Muslim Arc? Um, or just kind of like some of the great stories of leadership that you've seen so far in our community? Yeah, I mean, just the continual work, like, you know, I, I connect with the people at Sahab Initiative, um, and it's mostly a group of millennials, and they're still doing a food bank and delivering services and supporting their clients um, who have food insecurity and are also trying to figure out how do they pay their bills, and have a lot of concerns currently. Um, I know Isla LA, they're also delivering food to, um, to the elderly and those in need. Um, and one of, um, one of our members, Sister Atra Flemons, um, who is six, just turned 60 years old, she had called me and asked, what is the Muslim response? She didn't see it. And so mm. she actually um, is now on the list for those who need food delivered, that she's delivering food. Um, there's like Sister Rida Hamida in Orange County, like she's delivering toilet paper to like to folks who are in need in Orange County and just really taking care of people's needs. And in Janara Wahid, who's also, he was one of our, both our honorees. So Janara Wahid and Rida Hamida, they received racial justice awards and they're just on the front lines of providing support. And of course, all of the Muslim nurses and medical practitioners are still taking care of people. So there's just been a really inspiring response from crowdfunding to ensuring that people get food to informal people calling other people, kind of phone banking to see what needs to be done. And, you know, this is it's hard because you know we're as we're preparing for Ramadan and we have like schools and kids out and obviously the the teachers and educators who are trying to switch to homeschooling for our kids like they're showing tremendous leadership in this difficult time. Absolutely, I mean those are some amazing examples, and I 
I've seen so many of those as well. I think it's such a, you know, they, they say crisis brings out some amazing attributes of humanity, uh, of like people, of humans, and uh, definitely people stepping up to the plate, really innovative uh, ideas, like how people are continuing to serve their communities, how they're continuing to kind of help the underprivileged or uh, those in need, um, those that need help and support and assistance. So it's actually been, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's I, I know it's a challenging time for everybody and I know everybody's in a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of anxiety, but um, I, 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 I kind of share your sentiments. I mean, I think I've seen some wonderful innovation and creativity uh, that, that a lot of our community leaders have, uh, have just brought out. Yeah, and it's so important. And I think first and foremost is, are the religious leaders who are still helping cultivate our spiritual wellness, mm -hmm. like our religiosity mm -hmm. when we can't mm -hmm. come together in Juma, where people can't meet it and encouraging us um, to find ways to connect with our Lord. So I'm, I really, you know, special shout out to them. I'm so informal, like, thank you, Shif, you know, <laughs> virtual yeah. fist bump, you know, <laughs> like, so it's, but it's really beautiful to see that we we are responding and that people are connecting um, virtually and that we still have a sense of community and shared shared struggle to to do what's pleasing to our creator. And that's just that's been the thing that has inspired me so much. Absolutely. I, I, I share your sentiment a hundred percent. I mean it's been it's been great that we can stay connected and and just, you know, just kind of adjust, be agile and adjust to the circumstances and still kind of um, uh, serve our community, serve our, the people, um, you know, our leaders continuing to kind of get, get that out there, their, their messages out there, inspire people. Um, so speaking about inspiration, so we wanted to know, you know, a little bit about the work you're doing. So the Muslim Anti-Racism uh, Collaborative, the Muslim ARC, we'll call it Muslim ARC for uh, those mm -hmm. that those maybe are not familiar with it. So tell us a little bit about your current role, some of the work that you all are doing. It's it's a very important um, initiative in the Muslim community, very much not talked about a lot. So can you speak to us a little bit about your role and what you're doing? Yeah, so I am the executive director and executive directors of small nonprofits. We wear a number of hats, but I'll first talk, talk about um, what Muslim Market does. We are a human rights education organization and what we do is we specifically focus on building capacity for racial justice within Muslim communities. And we train allied communities, those whose work aligns with ours um, and support the Muslim community. We train um, different groups, communities, and institutions on the, the, the diversity of Muslim Americans and the various ways that we are racialized. So we make the connection between the anti-Islamophobia organizing world and the anti-racism organizing world and we're kind of sitting there at the bridge of that to make sure that when people are doing anti-racism they're doing it in a way that brings about greater equity and that doesn't do harm to other communities or even the diverse communities that we're comprised of because we don't have a racial majority in the muslim community but sometimes when people they, you know, who may grow up in one particular community, and if that community's in a silo, they may make certain decisions without taking into account the, the diversity, the plurality of Muslims. And so what we try to do is advocate within Muslim communities through political education, through regular education, and sometimes just agitate, 
right, on social media by just doing a lot of storytelling of the importance of diversity, inclusion, and equity within Muslim communities. And so that's been like really great work. And over the past few years, we've also had, um, we've had um, secular institutions from universities through like partners, other faith-based initiatives who've asked us to uh, provide training on Islamophobia. And so what we've been really successful at doing is doing both an analysis of um, human rights law. So Namira Islam, my co-founder, is a lawyer by training and she had worked in The Hague um, on the Bosnian genocide. And that was actually a point of connection because my senior thesis was on Bosnia. And so it was just, we had an immediate like, oh my gosh, you're doing that work. And you know, hence like our deep connection to actually form this organization. And I'm a historian by training and I study ethnic, like racial identity, race formation, um, in Muslim communities. And so we take that both the human rights approach and this historical analysis, and we provide a kind of deep understanding of the importance of anti-racism and addressing dehumanization on a global scale. So it's not just the United States, but also what happens globally. And so, you know, we, we provide curriculum and deliver training both on the ground and virtually. So we do have, we have webinars, we have study at your own pace courses that um, our members can take. And, um, you know, we've been, we've been in 25 states. And last year, I would say we've, we've had about 30 workshops across the country. And so each year we kind of grow in the amount of programming that we do with different representatives and building out leadership programs. And so it's been it's been pretty incredible, like the multiple projects that we've worked on and just seeing how people are able, we see institutions that are much more inclusive in their language and their, their kind of strategies. And those are big wins for us. And so we're just very excited and we do feel honored to be in this unique position to provide the, the education services that we do. I love it. I, I mean, I, I think the diversity, equity, inclusion, or, or, or diversity, inclusion, equity work, um, I know it's, it's tremendously valued for lots of organizations now. It's, it's such an important, um, it's such an important kind of a function of organizational work. And, and I think I, I read your article on Muslim Matters from a couple of years ago that uh, people don't realize that the Muslim community is probably the most diverse community from a religious perspective, right, in the country. I, I think, uh, we're definitely the most diverse in terms of um, ethnicities that we have. Um, mm-hmm. So can you can you speak a little bit to? Uh, so I I think let's let, if we can dive into this. I mean I'd, I'd love to mm-hmm. your perspective. What are what are organizations doing poorly? Let's say in in terms of fostering inclusion and equity in their community centers or their mosques or their MSAs. Uh, what what are some of the biggest challenges? Like, what is going on? Yeah, some of the biggest challenges that um, I do see is that, like, we know that Muslim Americans are majority people of color, yet we're not always taking into account how we can internalize white supremacy that can become harmful in, in creating a kind of harmful organizational culture that pushes outliers out you know so 
there's ways that we may communicate with people. There's ways like certain hiring practices where people are not considered professional if they have certain accents. And so, for example, like um, Islamic schools. So that's kind of where I had first, even the seeds of Muslim arts started at. And if you look at a lot of Islamic schools, and I know we don't have all the statistics because, you know, we don't have to do that, right? We don't have to yeah. do that kind of work with, you know, like if you get government funding, there's certain things you have to do. But sometimes you'll have people like, oh, yeah, we're very diverse. I'm diverse. You're, you know, like, they'll be like you know, you're diverse. You're diverse. You're, you know, like if they're all people of the same ethnicity, but it doesn't mean that the, but even within, say, if we took Arab Americans, there's such plurality and what does it mean to be Arab? Like what country, what ethnicity, there's racial diversity within the Arab Americans. And so, um, you know, like I, I think it's like, we have to be very clear in how we understand um, diversity, but also why it's important, why it's important for um, our schools to not just take, like try to create a quota and say like, oh yeah, we invited five different people to this meeting but how do we actually, how do we include them in a way where their, their views are respected and valued? Mm. And so what I do sometimes see is like within leadership or administration, because to be a teacher, right, you have to have a degree. And mm. so a lot of some of a number of the Islamic schools that I saw, especially on the East Coast, you'd have African-American teachers who taught the regular classes. And there's a tendency to have a white principal. And it's like, wait, you know, like, what is, is there a certain assumption? Is there something internalized that we're doing where we see the natural place of like all white converts is to become instant leader of our communities? And it's, I'm not trying to be very harsh on white converts or, or those who are born in like, you know, from European descent. But I think that sometimes we have to interrogate what we internalize as far as what's considered professional, what's, you know, what are we aspiring to? If somebody has a Southern accent, do we think that they're not? And I would hear these comments, right? And, and, um, and it was ironic because for me, like when I've spoken, like, in especially my younger voice, I think was like, definitely ethnically ambiguous. Like no one knew I was black. But then when I went to the Islamic school, I would have like teachers tell me they couldn't understand black people in our vernacular. And I was just like, mm. well, actually I don't have, like my accent is very Californian. <laughs> and it's like, it's sort of a issue, you know, um, within my own culture, you know, like my own family, they kind of would make fun of me and my brother because in their view, we sound white. And so, you know, sometimes you, we would hear kind of microaggressions about, um, race within within school settings and mm. the challenges of students, right? Like, and can you define microaggressions? I'm sorry, it's a yeah. really important term. If, if that uh, is. people are not familiar with it, yeah, like so, a microaggression is often unintended. It's an unconscious expression of bias, um, and so it could be like a subtle slight that you know leads people to feel like they don't belong. And they're so micro that sometimes when you point them out, that the person who, per who has perpetuated it will be in complete denial that they did it, you know, like they, I didn't intend to do it. And so given how much Muslims, like we talk about Nia, right, like with like our intentions around everything, 
when it comes to unconscious bias and how that may slip into our language or the way we, we may treat other people. Um, so for example, um, one, uh, an example of microaggression that happened to me in a Muslim community or like by another Muslim where someone of a different ethnicity said, I'm very articulate for a black woman, mm. you know? And it's just, okay, that's, mm. This, you know, like that is a microaggression that all people of color face, right? In in the dominant society, but we could perpetuate that in a Muslim society, like in our mm -hmm. Muslim spaces. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of like an example, like you speak so well, or, you know, sometimes it's just not understanding or invalidating someone's viewpoints or their culture. And so there's like a really great book, Daryl Wing Su, who's an Asian American psychologist so he studies like the psychology of race talk um, in professional settings. And um, so he's done a lot of studies on the impact of microaggressions on people of color. Mm -hmm. And so for our work in Muslim ARC, it's acknowledging that um, there's microaggressions against certain people. So that could be, for example, like my Muslim name is Aziza. So like, you know, like, and for a long time, I was just like, yes, call me only Aziza. And then so somebody would say, do you know what your name means? <laughs> it's like, okay, I mean, we picked it, right? You know, or I've had, I was buying a Tajweed Quran. So here's another microaggression. I went to the bookstore. I wanted a Tajweed Quran. I asked for Hafs because that was like what I was learning. And the person said, can you read this? You know, and then I'll open it and want to make me read it. And I'm just mm. like, if I'm asking for this quote, and, you know, and I, and I'm, I have performance anxiety. So it's just like, I really didn't want to do it. But for sure. just this kind of doubt or um, the doubt of like the veracity of my Islam or my ability to do things or understand something. So sometimes it just comes out in subtle ways in Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. And and then Muslims are we face those microaggressions too by often well-meaning people, but it still can lead us to feel less like in the United States less American. Yeah. And microaggressions within the Muslim community makes us feel like we're less Muslim. And right. then, and I've seen it happen with Asian Muslims across the world, even in Cairo. You know, like it happens yeah. with South Asians. You know, sometimes it happens within. The same country within cities. 100%. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, and I, I really appreciate, I mean, this is such an important conversation. I, I think uh, at an individual level, people don't understand certain things. So for example, there's, uh, I think uh, the, the differentiation between explicit bias and implicit bias. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what we we kind of kind of understand as like, most people, I think, in our community, they wouldn't call themselves explicitly biased, right? I think mm -hmm. they wouldn't say they're racist. Uh, but the implicit part is what people don't understand a lot. So can, can you speak a little bit to that? Like, what is unconscious bias or implicit bias? Yeah, so, I mean, we've, we are absorbing hundreds of years of narratives, right? Like, not only just narratives, but also what society values, like all the images, all the messaging, all the things we were taught when we were children, as far as like, what's desirable, what's beautiful, what's, what's valuable in society. Mm -hmm. And so those are things that really go into how we order and, and, and move about in the world. And everybody has bias, right? Like there's things like if we're familiar with certain people, 
Um, you know, so there's like the implicit association test, which can, in many ways, like it's, it doesn't necessarily measure how you'll act, but it, it's meant to kind of like, if there's a slowdown of associating good things with either race or skin tone or Muslimness. And so when I did the Muslim IAT, I had a bias towards Muslims, you know, <laughs> like, it's like when I compare, mm -hmm. like, I have a natural bias towards black people, like where I will prefer, I feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with, you know, my, both my comfort rate, who I'm close to. And it's not something I can always measure out, but like being aware of my own bias, my own, whether that's in colorism, then I can correct for that. But often mm -hmm. people that aren't aware of their own bias, like they're not thinking about, okay, like I received this messaging that white is right you know like there was like mm -hmm. that saying it was just like white is right if you're black stay back you know like if you're yeah. if you're if you're yellow you're mellow like there used to be these sayings when i was growing up and so you know if you learn those things and then it's in your kind of memory psyche, like yeah. just deep sub subconscious then it could be your actions like the look on your face or that stalling can actually lead to decision making and a lot of times we may make certain kind of snap judgments and decision making mm. based on things that aren't necessarily things we're consciously thinking about like you know mm -hmm. like when people for self-defense you know they're not always thinking instantly like i am you know i mean there there are maybe there are times like where people say like okay you're in this bad neighborhood and they know that's code for like black and latino so lock your doors so that's like a conscious thing mm -hmm. but it could be the subconscious is just the things that we don't want to admit about mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. we see people that are different from ourselves and so and that can what can slip out is both an aversion to interacting with people who are different from us who who we've been trained by society to see as threatening or it could come out in um the subtle ways where we're kind of like our bias is coming out in our language our body language and how we're interacting with people and and it can sometimes be picked up on and the subtle things can happen for example um black students get disciplined more mm -hmm. and that includes by every teacher black mm -hmm. teachers white teachers like you mm -hmm. know like it's just a bias that we have or pain like there's something in that we've been trained to see black pain in a different way and so the, whether administering painkillers so black people don't get as good medical treatment or pain yeah. reduction because yeah. of that and it's not that they're thinking about it they're just like okay this is this patient yeah. and so but when we understand that that there is a bias outcome then those medical professionals can check that bias mm -hmm. and make sure that they deliver equitable treatment and similarly if we're teachers and we know that we're much more likely to be harsh on black students then we could just make sure we do a little checklist like did i did I discipline Sally the same way I disciplined Jamal, you know, mm -hmm. like, and just make mm -hmm. sure that we're not doing that. So mm -hmm. it's very important that we make the unconscious conscious, like visible mm -hmm. so that we can mm -hmm. measure for that. And it also mm -hmm. hiring practices too. My name is very Anglo. Marguerite Hill, which is like a weird spelling of a Latin name does not 
signal anything for most people. So I would most likely, like I've gotten job interviews, they would hear me over the phone. And, and if I didn't code for black, like I could get into the face-to-face -face interview. But if you have certain names, yeah. that bias comes out, right? And yeah. so, and Muslims of all races, we're not immune to that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I mean, these are amazing, amazing points you're bringing up. Um, lots of lots to unpack there. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's I, I love that you kind of refer to. It's interesting that our communities on, on the brunt end of racism on one mm -hmm. side, like you mentioned, and then on the other end, we're just because we are extremely diverse. There's lots of uh, kind of that that you know that racism or um, definitely lots of bias. Let's just say. Mm -hmm. um, that is, that's occurring within our institutions. Um, I wanted to, I want to, I guess I want to ask you there, let's maybe start there. How, so, and, and there's, what we didn't refer to, there's a lot of intersectionality too, right? Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. a, a black woman, different than an Arab woman, different than, of course, an Arab man or a Pakistani uncle, or, you know, people don't understand that uh, there's lots of intersectionality to things as well. Um, how, how, what, what are, from, let's say from an organizational sense, because, you know, what we try to focus is on how do we structurally refine these things for our nonprofit organizations? Mm -hmm. what, what are the, what are the things, whether, uh, what are the things that Muslim community leaders um, MSA presidents, what, what should they be conscious of? Like, how do we trigger that consciousness in terms of how this bias is manifesting itself in our organizations? Yeah, I think that part of our leadership development, we should always have a component of how do we best, you know, of including and understanding the diversity of Muslim communities. So then even if we're living in a totally suburban, you know, environment where because like I've had people to say like, well, I don't know how to recruit black people because there's no black people here. We live in this, mm. you know, like Orange County is 2% black people. But understanding the historical reasons why there may be that exclusion of black people, like what are the historical movements? And also what are the settlement decisions that we may make in deciding what's a safe neighborhood, what's not a safe neighborhood, where do we move? And, and then if we are a leader, right, if we're trying to serve our community is, is to, one, be aware of the kind of structural issues that impact us all um, and how it impacts people differently so that we're not just assuming that our messaging, our programming, which may all serve like, so say if you just have like one, like a kind of ethnocentric service to like, you know, one ethnic group and only the men. And if, and if, you know, the sisters, you're back there, we won't even give you space or access to ask your questions. And if you, feel uncomfortable then just you know go home or you know like we'll we'll make you feel like the the outsider for agitating for some type of inclusion but i think for us like in leadership we need to understand the people that we serve and we also need to understand the people that are not being served and interrogate why mm -hmm. um and you know and just to be very open of that and if we look at the prophetic model like our prophet sallallahu alaihi that community was diverse well you know like there was people of so many different backgrounds and classes and status Age. of freedom and ages. you know like ages and he paired off people like in medina of diff who were really different 
and he listened to people's needs. And so I think the concept of shura is like really important. And in fact, we use that like early on in planning is like asking people, he like, what are your needs? You know, <laughs> like, what do you feel about this? And so, um, and un understanding the deep history, like we, we have to get to know other people. Um, Cause if like, that's also like, we feel like that's a Quranic injunction to get mm -hmm. to know each other. Cause we're different tribes and nations and where else can we do that? And like, you know, in diaspora in the West where we're just so diverse. Right. And so, and even if we are in a, say like in another society where it's like mono, like one ethnicity, there's so much diversity in one country. Right. So it's like just even keeping that principle still applies. And I think that we need to understand that if we're going to take an anti-racism approach, we think about who has the most to lose, like who's the most vulnerable, who is the most, um, who has the most needs. And we mm. really focus our needs on that, not on like, you know, the people who are the most elite. And sometimes I think what we do have, and, and I guess like I struggle with, is that um you know like we have so much respect and deference for people who have like high statuses and are very wealthy and we're not treating the most you know poor humble person in that same way and that's something a bias that goes across race but i think it really touches that and so like if if our programming is meant to please the people who have the most money the most resources who are the most privileged then we're, you know, like we're gonna leave out a lot of people. But if we center the people who have the most needs and we make our programming great and accessible, it's gonna serve the wealthy and powerful. It's gonna invite more people to the place. Mm -hmm. And so I think depending on like who, however you're serving is like really making that a, a core principle. Um, and I do think that, you know, we do have to, our leaders need to understand the communities that we serve and, mm. and the historical things that have happened to them. Like, for example, um, early on when I was in the MSA, like, I mean, I had to learn more about the history that brought my Iraqi friends to America, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. it's just like, you have to learn like what, what was happening mm -hmm. in, in their, with their families and, and the persecution that they faced. And I think that that's very important. And so, how do we foster a leadership that really understands the complexities of our community and takes that mm. time? You know, I mean, I don't think it's a heavy lift. I think it makes people much better. <laughs> like, mm. it's just like, that's why I'm like, anti-racism is amazing. Why aren't more people doing it? <laughs> it's just like, I, I think it's, for me, it's been a beautiful journey. Um, other ways of learning how to communicate differently that takes into, into account power and mm. class and race so i we practice compassionate communication is like and we sort of prophetic communication and speaking in the best way i'm not saying i always do it on twitter like i try but like you know when we have conflicts so you know like we try to teach people how to communicate in a way that's non-violent that really preserves the dignity of people mm -hmm. and that just makes you a better person so i do i do think um interrogating our bias you know mm. like which i mean when i'm just thinking about that like you know there's so many stories whether we're talking about 
like from the stories of Bilal and Abu Dhar or even like that the Quran like you know the story of like the blind man you know like he wasn't like super important guy and like what did Allah do like that's just like whoo like I can't even imagine being you know like but just yeah. that that lesson was like very powerful for me and I and I try to draw on those examples to when we center the blind man in our community we will serve the most people I, I mean, that's, uh, I, I love that. That's tremendous. I mean, your, uh, your breakdown of that. And, and I think what you're highlighted is an awareness, like there should be just an absolute awareness of <laughs> what's going on, people's histories in your community, the different levels, the different types of people, different ages, different genders, different ethnicities, um, different classes, as you mentioned. I, I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, I think leadership needs to be driven with equity at its core, right? That people <laughs> need to understand, I think, particularly community leaders, nonprofit leaders, institution leaders, that their job is to serve everybody that's around them and being super <laughs> inclusive of that. So I think that awareness, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. That awareness seems like super important. At like a more micro level, how do you... If I'm a if I'm an MSA president, or if I'm on a team with, um, you and 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 you know because we see these inequities, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's women, or it's um in in kind of board positions, or uh, national figures, or executive directors, or like you mentioned, school administration, right? You see these inequities. What can people do to foster a more equitable, inclusive culture for their organizations? Mm -hmm. Like, what should they be doing for their teams or how they're structured or what can they do at that level? Yeah, well, there's a number of really great assessment tools and Muslimark provides some and there's a lot of others that are like free, like from like partner groups and looking at kind of where kind of the first step for like anti-racism competency or cultural competency in general is to be able to do a self-assessment. Like, where are mm. we at? And sometimes this is being really honest, you know, like, it's just like, okay, like if we ask these questions that are quantifiable or even looking mm. at like, how are decisions made? Like who's taking into account? Who's allowed to make decisions, you know? Mm. And so like, I think just being able to like, go through a battery of, of assessments towards that get at like kind of key areas mm. of diversity, equity, inclusion of, of how do we include the most people in our, in our community? I think that's the first part. Um, then the second part is doing some learning and that takes some investment and in knowing like this, these issues have been around since the seventh century, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in mm -hmm. the last sermon, right? Like, it's just like, it's seventh century, the last sermon, it's like a black, you know, a white is not better than a black, a mm -hmm. black is not better than a white. Like it's, that doesn't go away. Just like, you know, and some people are like, yeah, Islam forbid racism. So we solve the problem, but we still have people on the minbar reminding us to not fornicate or drink. Like those are hurt on too. So it's just like, but we need those reminders. And especially with racism, it's just the subtle thing of, well, you know, we don't have clans Muslims, alhamdulillah. We've had people who've left it, like who've been white supremacists and left it and embraced Islam in its plurality, which that's amazing. But we don't have anybody promoting that type of hatred. But what hmm. we do have is like the little subtle ways that we've absorbed the messaging in this society. And if 
because we're such a vulnerable community, right? And like our diverse community, it's so important for us to be unified and to be strong along these lines. And at the same time, while I'm very harsh about, you know, like I'm very adamant about this, I think the Muslim community is very promising. And I'll get to like the, to the MSAs, but yeah. I have so much hope because Muslim Americans are having these conversations amongst people of color in such advanced levels that I don't see anywhere else. And mm. so I think we're kind of a bright spot and almost like we're in our own like crucible that we mm. can build this out and to do this work and provide a model that can be like, this is what we could offer to America is like how we deal with the race problems, mm. like how we deal with diversity, equity, and inclusion in a way. And we can even demonstrate allyship in such a meaningful way that other groups don't get it. So it's like, you know, like I do think we're kind of, we're definitely hopeful. Mm. When it comes to MSAs, I also understand that MSA president, you know, at the most are four years out of high school. Usually they're one to two years out of high school. We're talking about a very young person who's figuring out their lives and their own identity. Um, I think this is where the support for race equity has to be kind of that generational like we need the institutional history and this is where chaplains and places Mm. like the msa national and msa west can provide some basic guidelines for a new msa president because it's a Mm. lot you know like this if you're just like just out of high school and you're trying to form a club you know like it's they're still figuring out things and they're still at maybe certain stages of their own racial identity development because it's not a natural like certain things don't just come, you know, just like, you know, racism sucks. And now I'm so woke and I never will hurt or do, you know, be microaggressive against people. Like it's, it's gonna, we're gonna make mistakes. We're, we're all in young people are figuring it out. So, but I do think it's, it's still, you know, if there are particular tools for MSA presidents um, and the board to understand the needs of diverse students and to be aware that the MSA is a religious community. And so even though, and we have to be a little bit careful about making it ethnocentric and Mm. normalizing one ethnicity, which could push people out. And so how do we kind of make sure that everyone feels like their full identity is, like their full identities are welcome in that space. It may take some practice and, you know, and, and some patience, but I think, you know, a chaplain or the MSA could provide some guidelines to, to help build some structures in place for them to do that better. Yeah, I, I love that. That's, that's great advice. And I, and I agree with you on the sentiment that sometimes, and I think many times leaders, they get thrust into a position. They're not, they're not trained as we, I think we both know. Mm-hmm. They're not, there's no kind of like education, no background. There's no onboarding. There's no orientation there's no like prep work to be a a leader or to be on a team or to you know run or be a part of an organization so um i i I think that uh, what what you mentioned is tremendously valuable and i and i think everybody can do that it doesn't you don't need to have a stamp of some position to be able to foster uh more equity Mm -hmm. more inclusion of, of of the diversity that's being exemplified or being represented in your community in your or community or your organization or your team your school i think that's super important um wonderful wonderful thoughts um i mean how can we so how can we know a little bit about you uh uh, uh 
black Muslim woman leader in the, in the, you know, in the community on the brunt end of, I'm sure of a lot of challenges. What, what have been kind of, tell us a little bit about your story and kind of <laughs> what made you, what, what drove you to, 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 to bring Muslim art to life and to, to be kind of doing this work in the Muslim community? Yeah, well, 20, 26 years ago, I was one of those untrained leaders that was thrust in a position. And I mean, the first experience that I had with the MSA, someone asked us to go, it was like at De Anza Community College. And it was like a large student body uh, of Muslims at this community college. And in many ways, like we were one of like the more active ones compared to like the other schools in, in the South Bay area. And I was asked to go, like I was walking somewhere and I saw one of the president, like the president of the student council getting dragged out by the police. And he was a young African-American man and he handed me a tape recorder to go into the meeting and record the question and ask why he was being arrested. <laughs> like, and so, mm -hmm. and I was like, this little like young Muslim, like I had a, a, a jab on it, barely fit my head. And I just went in and I was just like, hi, I'm, I'm, you know, like helping out with the MSA and, and what's happening here? And so from there, I became like the secretary of the MSA. <laughs> like, it's mm -hmm. like, cause I went to the student, to the student council meetings and it found out like that this young man, like some, uh, a young woman who was white had uh, filed a restraining order because he creeped her out. Cause he was mm -hmm. like very argument. He was very politically engaged and she was very intimidated. And so he was arrested for um, being intimidating for going to his job, which was the student body president. And so that was kind of like both in my stepping into leadership. It was just like somebody handed me this microphone, like it was a, as a recorder. Somebody handed me this recorder and asked me to make the question. Um, then shortly after, it was like the Oklahoma bombing. Um, and there was a lot of press conferences and this was like during a time, like there wasn't even like care was just forming somewhere, but like we had like, it was like the NAACP that kind of was like stepping up and addressing things. And so, um, and the year after I became co-president of the MSA, I didn't have any training. Like there's a lot of things I was trying to figure out. Um, and then for the most part over the past 26 years, I've been involved in some way in either an education institution and agitating like student back then it was like we were we were really concerned about bosnia you know we really wanted intervention there were you know like it was like after the gulf war so it was like definitely you know there's so many things happening mm -hmm. and you know and there was like a time where my faith like my faith practice like i was just like i'm just going to disappear into the crowd and it was like I stepped back in as a student going back to school um, to finish my undergrad during 9-11. And so, you know, like that's where I became really passionate about writing and research. And I wanted to look at Muslim institutions um, that predated colonialism. And I, mm. I thought you could just save the world if we could understand our history. So like, I really, mm. <laughs> that's what I just thought. And, so I wanted to become an academic because I love teaching and I like reading and I like writing. Um, and so after I left my PhD program, I taught in an Islamic school and uh, I had like a great mentor teacher and we had different assemblies to address issues that were coming up. And so 
race became an issue that came up in our school where we had students that were complaining about some of the bullying, some of the, some of the statements that were made, some of the discrimination. And um, after I went on maternity leave, I taught at a community college. I taught um, Intro to World Religions. And I started seeing on social media um, young Muslims saying racist things, you know, and I also saw the lack of um, kind of energy. There wasn't an energy around Trayvon Martin. So like, eight, and this is eight years ago. So I just posted the picture of me and, and my little girl, like she's a little baby with our hoodies. And, and they, you know, I saw that there's a lack of awareness about police brutality. And so I wanted to create, I, I decided I want to study online courses and how do we make massive open online courses to scale up anti-racism because i never had access to anti-racism training like i didn't have access to that kind of critical analysis and so i wanted to make that accessible and in 2014 um a kind of small group coalesced and we launched the hashtag being black and muslim and we wanted to keep it like an open thing so we weren't sure like what people would say but we wanted to hear back from people and what we found that there were like really like amazing stories really things that we we're excited about the deep pride but a lot of heartbreak and from there we we're just like oh like every few years within the muslim community this issue of race comes up but we don't deal with it properly so how do we really take this moment to address it and that's where namira and i who she had this she was she did a paper on human rights like anti-racism education and in other places where they had settler colonialism like the canada even you know like the holocaust in europe you know in australia they they have mandated anti-racism education but in america they don't so she wrote this paper and i you know i was like hey i have this idea for massive online open courses and you know we kind of became really close friends who never met each other until our uh, proposal for ISNA for a panel and six children's workshops were approved and we met each other in Detroit at, at ISNA and it was just a really great reunion and a great you know like just the people that we worked with they were mostly Muslim women of different all different backgrounds from Afro-Arab, uh, Syrian, um pakistani namira is bangladeshi and i'm african-american and and to be able to kind of do this amazing work and to lift up so many voices over that year was just really fantastic and by 2015 we're like okay let's keep this going and we incorporate it as a nonprofit. so that's and we're mm -hmm. here now with with five tracks of curriculum May Allah bless you all. That's an amazing story. It's a, a wonderful journey. I, I think, you know, everybody's got their story. Everybody's got their journey. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, um, I, I guess you, you, you could say you found your calling as you saw, like people in our community were just not addressing this. Like this was, mm -hmm. I think, as you mentioned, I think it's getting more and more popular now, but three, four, five years ago, people weren't talking about social justice issues like they are today. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just been, for lack of a better term, like an awakening in terms of like the real issues in our country from a from a Muslim community perspective, looking at our country. Um, so that's mm -hmm. uh, that's an amazing journey. Um, what what have been what have been so at, 
for Muslim Arc, what have been the biggest challenges organizationally for y'all? Um, is it really getting people to buy into getting this kind of training? Um, uh, is it that people are not receptive to it? Give me a give me a bit of a landscape of how people kind of how do they digest what you all uh, deliver to them? Yeah, I mean, I think initially we, because I mean, when we first had our five-year plan, we thought we were going to get so much pushback, and we were just welcomed by even the organizations that we critiqued, you know, like that. We are like, we shared out really harsh criticisms, and they were just very welcoming. Like, we were actually very surprised to see, like, some, like the, some of the traditional scholars just, like, really be big supporters of our work. Um, so that was like really great. What I do think is like probably our biggest challenge right now is this notion of like the divide between scholars and activists. And then there's like this kind of stigma. And, and if you get, you know, like Namir and I, like the way that we communicate is a certain way. And, and I'm not saying that like, that people have kind of weaponized some of the social justice language in ways that we, you know, like it's speaking to like their pain and trauma, but it's not necessarily helping us do that kind of transformational work. And that when people, you know, like well-meaning nonprofit leaders, because everybody's underpaid, everybody's overworked, you know, like it's just like we're so under-resourced and we're giving it your all. And so when you're giving it your all and somebody goes on social media or maybe disrupts your meeting and says, you're not inclusive, this was racist, they just either, one, they're gonna wanna give up on everything, they're gonna be mad, you know, like they're gonna be de defensive. And anybody that says anything similar, they may not even wanna deal with them. Yeah. And so I think that's been like our big challenge is that, um, how do you get people who who may make mistakes but also just be receptive like we could all do things better i know i could do things better there's things i've said in the past six years that i'm just like yeah i wish i didn't go about it that way there's things i've said last week i'm just like yeah i probably shouldn't have tweeted that but i did <laughs> like so it's just like you know like i mean i'll do the whole ramadan you know like i'm sorry hit me up. I'm going to reach out to people who, who have felt excluded or hurt. Um, I think our biggest challenge that we do face is that um, within our leadership, like we're all, like our community has so much trauma that, and distrust. And so when we are hurt, we're acting from that trauma, right? Like mm. it's like knowing that that criticism that's or somebody says something about me a lot of times it's more about them or just like if i'm upset with someone it's more about me what's happening with me and less to do with that person right and so i think that what we need are like our leadership has to both like that empathy that we have has and and also like the guards that we have up against the onslaught of criticism that we have to kind of create a certain balance of, of being able to listen and get that kind of feedback of the impact of our work and to still be able to maintain relation, deep relationships, even with the people that we may not even know, like somehow be open to that feedback of recognizing what we may have said, what decision we may have made, 
something that has had those in, like a negative harmful impact on someone and be able to find a way to kind of fix that sometimes you know some things are like unintended consequences and there's not much we could do and you're like oh wow that's unfortunate i didn't include you in that program how in the you know we may have to ask how in the future we could do better and what i do find is that um sometimes like that first call in if it's we're a lot more sensitive, you know, like we're human, our leaders are human beings, myself mm -hmm. included. And it's just like that one criticism or something. And it's like, we don't want to deal with each other. And that's, you know, I think what, if we can solve that, then we could, we'll get the buy-in, you know, like, and, and people to, I think the the other part is to engage and not make assumptions. So sometimes we have certain people who may, see some of us who will like we hold space like we create spaces where people who come from very different backgrounds could feel safe um and so and that includes young people who may be reckless in what they say so i'm not gonna i, I believe like it's important that we understand like our young people who don't have access to resources who don't have big platforms being kind of patient with them yeah. because like they've said things that hurt my feelings too and but it's just like but just to be very open to be like okay you know and not condescending you know because that could also come across a certain way but to be kind of receptive to um to people and to be able to listen even if they're not always the most respectful and not take it personally so i think that's you know the the major buy-in that's that's a important issue the other issue i think that we do kind of struggle with and it's and it just happens to do with like some of our socialization it's it's really how do we train up like a cadre of muslim men like so i recognize like i'm a muslim woman you know like and i'm older than most of the like the young leaders now and so how do i transmit knowledge when a lot of times there may be like not always the appreciation for the the knowledge and experience that Muslim women leaders have and so you know like it's not as always easy for us to network with um, even across generations with like our elder males who could provide tremendous insight you know so I, I would like to find a way to do that in really respectful ways that honor like both our traditions and hikmah so that we don't have any like scandals like I'm all that but like how do we become muslim men and muslim women allies of one another i think that's important too and once we're able to do that and like get to know each other across you know like because that that ayat is like we were created male and female of different tribes and nations so that we may know one another and it's just like so we do have to have that knowledge and skills share across gender across race across ethnicity um, and across time, which we've been so amazing at as a Muslim community. I, I, those are uh, tremendously important um, insights. I, I really, um, I thank you for sharing them. I, I mean, I couldn't have worded them better that a lot of times it's your own psyche. And I think, you know, when it comes to improving yourself, taking criticism or feedback and kind of how you build and how you respond to things, I think it's super important to understand that. And at second level, and I think that that's real, you know, the, um, we just, a lot of times we, we are ignorant of what we're ignorant of, right? So if mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know, how am I supposed to, oh, I, I'm supposed to learn about this because 
I'm a board member of a, or of a community that's 10,000, 20,000 people, right? 30,000 mm-hmm. people. Um, I'm supposed to learn about from this sister and I'm supposed to learn from that brother and I'm supposed to learn to build allyship and I'm supposed to learn how to be included. Like these are things that are just so important and I, and I agree with you. It's, it's sometimes challenging, particularly I agree with you. We're very male dominant uh, in a lot of leadership positions and I, anything that's, uh, that's, um, that's, uh, it's amazing work that you're doing and I, you're breaking through. And I hope that, uh, we can continue to kind of build on that momentum for our organizations and, and their leaders. Um, I guess as we wrap up and, you know, kind of concluding your thoughts. So what, what would be your, um, if you were to say, Hey, look, this is the, you know, we, we always kind of ask this at the end of our podcast, what's the one piece of advice you would give community leaders? What, what's the one, what's the one thing you'd see manifest tomorrow in all like our nonprofit Muslim community leaders that if they did this thing, um, it would really transform the way our organizations operate? Yeah. Um, the thing I feel is like the most powerful is, is learning compassionate communication. To, to really learn how to listen with self-compassion, to avoid being having violent communication, like when someone's saying something to us, to be able to listen and to discern what they're trying to get to and, and to listen with like empathy towards what they're trying to say and what their needs are. Like, so understanding that. Um, you know, and there's like a number of practices around compassionate communication that I just feel like if, if we just really try to really listen um, without discounting um, people's needs and hopes um, that we can cooperate better. You know, we can collaborate, we can cooperate, we can meet each other's needs and we'd save so much time. Believe me, I mean, there's so much time wasted around the emotional drama in all of our nonprofits. And if we can like address some of that internal trauma and just be straightforward in our communication, we'd probably be twice as effective, I'd say. I I love that. And it's interesting because we have a workshop uh, Sister Marjorie, that is called compassionate communication uh, that we Fantastic. that we teach at Oak Tree. So it's it's exactly <laughs> Muhammad Hassan is the instructor that does it for us. So he breaks down listening and speaking skills that are essential for leaders. And um, it's it's uh, I I really appreciate you. you 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 give it a shout out twice. So I we're probably gonna cut it up and use yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely do. right. Oh no no, I mean you're you're absolutely communication is like such an important part of everything. It's it is the it's the lifeline of like how we function as organizations and as leaders, how we, and people just generally. And I think uh, you're absolutely right. Like just, just having that, those basic skills, um, overcoming ourselves a lot of times, like we're the hurdle block, particularly when people are different than us. I think you emphasize that a lot, that people, we, we, we get uncomfortable when around people that are different than us, that we hinder the way we communicate and it just creates this, really bad kind of you know loop of like you know bad vibes bad you know bad culture bad bad feelings and um it can really make uh make or break our organizations and and i think um i really appreciate you sharing that yeah i'm really happy that you're working on that i mean i would definitely send people your way like we touch upon it but we don't have it you know like in-depth workshops on it 
but you know, just at the core is just communication and, and breaking down some of the barriers that prevents us from mm -hmm. really listening and, and avoiding some of the coercion. Sometimes, you know, like that, the desire to, to move people in a certain direction or to do what we want rather than finding ways to come to a mutual compromise. So conflict resolution, um, and being sure that we're centering, you know, like when we're, when we're dealing with conflict, like who has, like what's one pleasing to Allah? Like what would Allah want us to do at mm. this time? And not looking mm. for excuses or like loopholes to, to be like, oh yeah, well, I got justification within in the dean to do this particular thing. But to really be like, you know, is this what I'm doing pleasing to Allah? And, you know, especially when we're doing that, our this nonprofit work because sometimes it pricks our egos because we're underpaid, we're overworked. Um, and the reason why we're doing this is because our deep sense of need of, of belonging and, and, and value and, but understanding, you know, ultimately like the outcome is with Allah, but like how we are with each other is something that's very important and we can't violate each other's rights within the deen and in with our neighbors, you know, like it's not just our ummah, but with our, with, with non-Muslims, we can't violate their integrity and their dignity. And so I think it's just very important for us to be mindful and to consider like what it, like, you know, being patient with ourselves as we make those mistakes, but being like, okay, with like, you know, I could do better this next time. And I, and I feel like we'll, we'll get there. And I'm really excited to know like that there's a leadership like Oak Tree's providing those leadership skills that are so needed um, for people to be effective in our nonprofits because th that's what's making our world a better place. And we, we need our nonprofits to be places where people could feel like fully like dignity and hope and not just burnt out. We can't afford this, you know, to burn out our people anymore through this kind of pressure cooker environment. I love it. Wonderful insights, oh, yeah. amazing gems. Allah to bless and reward you and all the amazing work you're doing. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out uh, to be on, on, on our podcast. And, and we hope and pray that inshallah you can continue uh, some, making some amazing breakthroughs at an individual level uh, and at, at an organizational level. Uh, um, thank you. Allah barik fiqh. Allah barik with that being said, uh, we'll conclude and zakwa khair for everybody for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.